If your business is tired of paying unpredictable and high phone bills, do what I did. Switch to Zoom Call's cloud business phone service. You'll pay the same low amount every month, no matter how many calls you have in the U.S. and Canada. And Zoom Calls has a really cool feature called voicemail drops. Whenever you reach someone's voicemail, just say hi in their name and then click a couple of buttons on your phone to leave your pre-recorded message. It saves both your voice and your time. Check out zoomcalls.com. That's zoomcalls.com. I think you'll love it. Attention, you're listening to the Todd Huff Radio Show, America's home for conservative, not bitter talk radio. Be advised that the content of this program has been documented to prevent and even cure liberalism, and listening may cause you to lean to the right. Here's your conservative, but not bitter host, Todd Huff. All right. So, I want to go through a couple things today before we, well, in addition to a couple things I want to go through, I also want to talk about something um, to kind of frame this a little bit. Trump's legal team makes their, has a press conference yesterday, and I just want to remind you. Well, I guess not remind you, but share with you an experience that I had. I'm not, I'm not an attorney. I take great pride. <laughs> I take great pride in that. I'm just half kidding out there, attorneys. But I'm not an attorney. But I, I did. Um, I was planning at one point to to go to law school, and so I did some a pre law program at American University. But that was fine. That helped me in a lot of ways understand some things that maybe I normally would not have. That we see going on uh, legally in this uh, country, legal proceedings and all the, you know, we did mock trials and that sort of thing. But more importantly than that, I served on a juror, a jury, which I've mentioned on here before. And I just want to share with you from the perspective of the jury, as a, as a juror, um, the purpose of an opening argument, because that's what we saw yesterday was just the opening argument. The opening argument is not not the presentation of all of the evidence. The opening argument is just to kind of set the scene. So I want to talk about that and then I want to share a conversation <clears throat> with you, excuse me, that I had yesterday with Hans von Spakovsky. He is senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He has a lot of experience in election law and constitutional law. Uh, he's a smart guy. He's studies these sorts of things. And so we, I just wanted to talk about the state of where things were with this election, with uh, regarding this election with Hans von Spakovsky. Uh, you've probably seen him. He's, I think, been on Fox, if you're still watching Fox. I think I saw him on Levin's program recently. So Anyway, we have uh, – I spoke with him yesterday after the program, and I want to share that conversation with you. But before we do that, by the way, welcome to the program. I'm your host, Todd Huff. You can email me your thoughts, your questions, comments, and, of course, your adoration and praise will also be ex- uh, accepted gleefully. Kidding, not kidding. Again, that email, Todd at ToddHuffShow.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram uh, – not Instagram, not yet. Well, we have an Instagram page, but we're not streaming on Instagram. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, 
Todd Huff Show being the platform for all of those outlets as well, all those platforms. And um, ToddHuffShow.com, you can watch the program live as well. That's the safest place to watch it because we will not censor our own our own show. Facebook might, YouTube might, who knows? Twitter might. Jack Dorsey. We're probably better off getting it past Jack when he's out doing cross-country hikes or whatever he's doing to grow his mountain man beard. But nonetheless, you can catch the program on all those platforms as it stands today. So let me really quickly here, really quickly here, talk about the opening argument from the perspective of a juror, right? From the perspective of a juror with a little bit of, a little bit of, I guess, uh, understanding of, of the law as well. So, I was I sat on a jury back in uh, 2000 and I think it was 17, maybe 18, maybe it was 18, 2018. And first of all, um, going through the whole process is gives you a tremendous appreciation of of this country and my from my perspective. And I think anyone who does it and really thinks about that this is all a byproduct of what the founders created. So. This concept of being tried by a jury of your peers is an, is an amazing thing to me. So the state thinks that you did something wrong that you know broke the law, and so they have to go through a process whereby they file charges and all these steps have to be taken um, before you know the defendant. It, it, the consequences of breaking the law require the you know the forfeiting of freedom. The individual's liberty. They're going to put someone behind bars and they're no longer going to have all of the freedoms afforded to them in America in our under our Constitution. And so now this is an election as I'm you know comparing and contrasting this with what's going on with, with the Trump team. So this is different in that sense, but there's certainly similarities. But when you're going to ask someone to forfeit their – not ask them, demand that someone forfeit their liberties through the violation of a law that requires them to be – incarcerated or even worse if they or it's a, it's a capital crime to give their lives you have to have an overwhelming amount of evidence and there has to be a very methodical process because the founders had witnessed throughout history and through their own experiences sometimes what happens when governments go out of control and by the way we have a government out of control i'm not saying in the same exact way the founders saw meaning people are not necessarily huh, You could certainly make the case, but on a wide scale, um, well, I don't know. Maybe it's more similar than I than I than I first was (laughs) saying when I started that sentence. But the point is, in the criminal sense, that they witnessed people be targeted um, and be threatened with with jail or whatever, some sort of punishment, oftentimes because of political disagreements or just whatever the people, the powers, the authorities of the day um, decided. So they said instead of letting this be a system that is determined strictly by the government, we want a group of peers, right? We want we want a person's peers. So this individual was arrested for a heinous crime in the jury that I served on, the trial where I was on the, on the jury. He was charged ultimately um, – with acts that led to the death of a five-year-old little boy. Terrible, terrible stuff. It wasn't a murder trial, but it was a conspiracy. Uh, conspiracy to commit murder were the charges. There were other charges as well. And so 
it, it was it was tough to watch. But but to think about it in hindsight, so that the state had the evidence, the state presented the evidence in a very methodical way, and the jury, we sat there as a peer of, of someone that was on, you know, we lived in the same general community. No one knew him, but we lived in the same general community. And it was our job to say, basically, before you take someone that's a free citizen like the rest of us, you got to prove that you should be putting this person away. It's a, the trial was just awful, but the system in action is beautiful. And so to watch that unfold and to be a part of that and to see it from the inside is, I think, Illuminated. For those of you that have served on a jury, I think you would maybe feel the same way as I do about this. I didn't want to do it in one sense, but I'm absolutely, um, I wouldn't have it any other way. And looking back through the lens of, of time, the, the 2020 perspective here that we have looking back over things in our past, I, I would not change that. But anyway, the opening argument, which is what I want to get to, and then I want to take a break and share my conversation with Hans von Spakovsky. The opening argument in the trial, they didn't present any, I guess you could say they presented, but but I would say they referenced evidence. Like they would make, the, the attorneys, the prosecution would say, we believe the evidence will show that Mr. So-and-so did this, uh, committed this crime, the evidence, the the autopsy, the circumstantial evidence, the physical evidence, his his testimony, um, you know, his his interview with law enforcement, whatever the evidence was. These things are going to show X, Y, and Z. And as you're sitting there in the jury, you know, as a juror, you're 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 really just trying to take it in, right? You're just trying to wrap your head around what you're about ready to be told, what you're about ready to see and to hear and all this sort of stuff. And so it's a little bit, I don't know, I don't want to say, well, I guess a little bit shocking to hear some of the things, but it doesn't mean you don't leave that opening argument and think suddenly now I have all the evidence to uh, to make a decision. See, ironically, the day before we had jury selection, and that was the point in time when the attorneys were asking questions as they were selecting who would actually be on that jury. They were asking questions about you know, whether or not someone could be fair and unbiased. And I remember flat out people in that jury selection process telling the prosecution or the defense that there's no way that, that they would even consider someone being charged of a crime like this. Uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't even consider the possibility that he or she was not guilty. I heard people say that. Now, did they mean it? Were they just trying to get out of the jury? That is left to be determined by the individual. I will say that some of them seemed quite adamant about this. So the first process was find people that are fair-minded, which good luck at finding that today in America. And the next process, okay, now we've got our fair-minded group. Now we're going to tell you what we're going to show you, right? If you're going to give a speech, what do they tell you in what eighth grade speech class or whatever? You tell people what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. That's really what happens, right? Opening arguments, I'm telling you what we're going to show you. Then they show the evidence over the course of whether it's hours, if it's a smaller trial. Our trial went on for, I don't know, two and a half weeks, I think. So there's two and a half weeks of, or two weeks of evidence. And then there's the closing arguments. The closing arguments are, we want to remind you what we told you and showed you. That's what it is. And so we're just at the beginning of this. I know a lot of folks are 
rolling their eyes at some of the accusations. I mean, some of these are bombastic things, right? I mean, we hear about communist ties in Venezuela and China, and it's just a lot to process. It doesn't mean that they're right. It doesn't mean that they're wrong either. And so there's a process. That's my only point today. People want to say, well, based upon the opening arguments, this is what I think. I've made my decision, my mind up. Well, you keep saying, show us the evidence. They're telling you the evidence they're going to show you, right? People say this, just where's the evidence? Well, okay, they've made huge claims. These folks have made enormous claims. Now they're going to tell you what they're going to tell you. They're going to, they're going to show you what they just told you they're going to show you. And then you can decide for yourself, just like the jury, um, whether or not they hit the mark or not. So now the only <laughs> there are of course differences. We're not we don't have any say in the jury trial I was a part of. Um, I, you know our vote was the the deciding vote. If all twelve of us voted to uh, find guilty or not guilty, that was the that was the outcome. There was no other opinion that mattered. That's different in this situation. And plus. We're not in the courtroom, so this is a PR thing, but we're just on the, on the map, on the timeline of where things stand. We're in the opening argument phases. So they made some pretty dramatic claims. Now let's see if they can produce, produce the good. So that being said, timeout is in order. When we get back, I want to share my conversation with Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow of the Heritage Foundation. Sit tight back here in just a minute. So I want to get right to this. This is my conversation with Hans von Spakovsky. He is the manager, election law reform initiative, and senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies Heritage Foundation. Got a lot of experience. He'll tell you a little bit about that. But I want to share this interview. It'll be a couple of um, couple of segments here, but I think you'll find this both informative and insightful here as we navigate what exactly is happening regarding the 2020 elections. So here's my conversation with Hans. Well, with everything going on with this election and all the questions, there's all sorts of questions, uncertainties, irregularities, just different things about the process. I thought it would be a good idea to bring in someone that knows just a thing or two about election, the Constitution, and election law. I've got Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Hans, how are you, sir? Welcome to the program. I'm doing just great. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. You do know a thing or two, I'd say, about the the Constitution, election law, and so forth. Maybe for our listeners who are not familiar with you, um, maybe give them a little bit of the background uh, that you have, experiences you have, and and just why you can, can speak to this. Uh, and, and shed some light on this issue for us. Sure. Uh, well, I do work at the Heritage Foundation, which is you know the biggest conservative think tank uh, in the world, and I run their uh, election law reform initiative. But uh, I got into that job because I uh, actually spent two years as a commissioner on the Federal Election Commission. Before that, I spent four years uh, actually enforcing our federal uh, voting rights laws at the U.S. Department of Justice. And I've also served on two different county election boards, one in Virginia, one in uh, Georgia. So, you know, besides 
legal experience in this area, I got something else, uh, which you don't often find with the lawyers who do this kind of work, which is practical experience as a county election official um, running voter registration and running polling places and elections in the two largest counties in two different states. So you're you're on the front lines, or you have been on the front lines. You've got experience with this uh, hands-on sort of stuff. So I want to pause. I'm, of course, our listeners know I'm a conservative, but I I, I don't I want to approach this as apolitically as we can um, to try to parse through. There's so many things for a lot of folks. Folks don't understand how elections really work. Um, for a lot of folks, there's confusion. There's uh, there, there's you know, the lawsuits and there's recounts and there's audits and all this sort of stuff going on. So I want to be as apolitical as we can through this. So if you could give us maybe a quick summary of what's going on regarding the 2020 election um, in, in the, the few key states that we have, recounts, lawsuits. I don't want to go in depth, but just maybe a snapshot if we can. Let's start with, with Georgia. Maybe give us an idea of where things stand and what's going on in the state of Georgia. Well, you know, they've been doing a recount uh, in Georgia. They're supposed to uh, have it finished uh, very shortly, and then they will announce the results. During the recount, they actually found over 5,000 votes that had not been counted um, during the election, which shows how having a recount was actually necessary. Hopefully, they'll be doing audits to figure out how that happened in the in the first place. Um, but what people need to understand is a recount simply recounts the ballots that have been cast, it's not able to turn up, for example, election fraud. And what I mean by that is, look, if if somebody, um, let's let's assume, for example, somebody's not a U.S. citizen, but they registered in Georgia, they weren't caught, and they voted in the election. A recount isn't going to figure out uh, because they're not checking the voter registration list and verifying the information. It's not going to figure out that an alien who's not supposed to be voting vote in the election. It's simply going to recount his ballot. And that's the situation in Georgia. You know, they're having a recount. Um, will it change the results? Probably not. You know, the, the difference between the two candidates is about 14,000 votes. And uh, recounts don't tend to change a lot of votes. I was actually surprised that they found 5,000 votes have not been counted in this in this particular recount so far. So, and, that, and that's a great point. Re, you know, the, this issue of, of auditing, you, you differentiated there between just recounting what's already there and then actually figuring out, are there ballots being cast that either shouldn't be cast or they're, you know, they may be illegal ballots? Who knows? In a lot of these instances, there's been a whole lot of problems come up in the state of Georgia. What about Pennsylvania? Where do things stand in Pennsylvania? Well, Pennsylvania, you know, the margin of victory there was about 63,000. There have been uh, lawsuits filed contesting a lot of things. You know, the biggest thing that happened this year was folks on the left side of the political aisle going to court to try to change the rules governing the election. And Pennsylvania is a good example of that. There, uh, the deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots is the end of election day. You know, your, your absentee ballot has to be in the hands of election officials by the end of election day. Uh, state officials there basically said, well, despite the statute, we're going to extend the deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots to three days after Election Day. And the state Supreme Court upheld that. Not only that, but they said uh, election officials couldn't reject a ballot if the signature didn't match 
which is required by state law, you know, supposed to compare the signature on the absentee ballot with the signature on file for the voter when they registered. Uh, And also that with the three-day extension, it was supposed to have been mailed by the end of election day. But even if there wasn't a postmark on the envelope of the absentee ballot showing that, they still had to be counted. All of those are changes that if the state legislature had wanted to make them, they could. You know, state legislatures constitutionally are given the authority to set the rules for uh, federal elections in their states. But here it was state officials in the state Supreme Court. And so the Trump campaign has gone to court along with members of the uh, state legislature and are suing, saying, for example, any absentee ballots received after Election Day shouldn't be counted because that violated state law. And we don't have yet results in those lawsuits. That is the one case that might end up before the U.S. Supreme Court if the Trump campaign continues to pursue it. And these things are, I mean, pretty straightforward. I mean, you mentioned some of these laws. It's in black and white. But to your point, the the courts uh, arbitrarily uh, extended these things or through the executive actions of or the, the executive branch taking action and so forth. So that's a problem. It's one of the problems we have with, with judicial activists at all levels of courts around this country. What about Michigan? What's going on in Michigan, Hans? Michigan has a very large differential, and, and it's about 147,000 votes that, that Biden won. And the, the specific problem in, in Michigan is that um, the Trump campaign, again, they filed suit, and they're complaining about the fact that their poll observers were kept out of the Detroit uh, downtown facility where they were opening, processing, and counting absentee ballots. And as you know, we had a huge, really exponential increase in absentee ballots uh, this year. And uh, uh, Detroit officials basically broke state law. You know, candidates and political parties are allowed to have observers to observe every aspect of the election process. And there's, that's a, there's a good reason for that. We want that kind of transparency so that we can ensure that officials aren't doing things they shouldn't be doing. And because of that, the Trump campaign is saying, look, we can't be sure they actually uh, did what they're supposed to do with absentee ballots, which is when an absentee ballot comes in and they open up the outer envelope, they're supposed to verify and check, is this a registered voter? Did they sign the, the form? Did they... Uh, correctly provide their registered name and address. And if any of that information is missing or it's wrong, the ballot's rejected. You know, it's not counted. And I think the Trump campaign is alleging that what they believe happened in Detroit is Detroit officials just basically uh, threw out all those procedures and just counted every ballot coming in. And even if it came in from a person who wasn't on the registered voter list, uh, they just added their name to it and counted the ballot, which, again, would break uh, state law. So w- we don't know how many ballots that might have affected. Is it enough to change the outcome? I don't know. 147,000 votes. That's a lot of votes to, to change. And uh, I don't know if they've got the evidence sufficient to convince a judge uh, that the, the results of the election were compromised. So normally – one more question here before we have to take a break. But I guess – we can't go through every single state, but what normally is supposed to happen? The normal process, the you know, the people of a state vote. Um, you know, there's a declared winner usually. There might be a little bit. Of, sometimes there's a lawsuit or whatever the case may be, or a recount. 
but generally speaking, there's a concession, there's certification of the electors, all this stuff happening that people don't normally see. Maybe walk us through what normally happens um, after the votes are, votes are counted or cast on election day. Uh, they have an initial count of the, the votes and they report the results. Um, there's usually a recount if the margin of victory, it depends on the state, but it, usually if the margin of victory is 1% or less, or in some states it's half a percent or less, then they do a recount where they go through and once again, just count, recount the ballots. They're not verifying, as I said, uh, voter registration issues. Once that's done, uh, then election officials certify the results. That means they're signing forms saying these are now the official results of the state. Normally, that's when folks file lawsuits, losing candidates, if they still believe that there was a problem, somehow the election results were, were compromised. And, you know, normally litigation could take quite a while. I, I don't know if you recall this, but remember 2008, there was a litigation contest over the U.S. Senate race in Minnesota uh, between Al Franken mm -hmm. and the incumbent, Norm Coleman. That litigation took eight months. At the end of it, Al Franken was declared the winner. But here we've got a deadline, December 14th. That's when the Electoral College is supposed to meet in each state and cast the official votes for president. So time is short. Okay, I need to take a break, but when we get back, I want to talk a little bit about maybe what makes this election different. You said, even with that last answer, you said that um, most lawsuits or many lawsuits aren't even filed until the certification process. We've got all this stuff happening here kind of on the front end of this. I want to walk through what's what's different, uh, talk a little bit about voter fraud, irregularities, that sort of thing. But I got to take a time out. We're with Hans von Spakovsky. He's senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Be back here in just a minute. Welcome back. So, talking with Hans von Spakovsky, it's a two-part interview, uh, but because of the programming format, I've got to, I need to do a short segment here and then play the second half of our interview um, here in the next segment. So, but look, whatever the circumstances, uh, whatever, however people are viewing this, um, you know, you can look at this. Some people want to know the odds of, you know, Trump somehow get, getting uh, elected still. This is not this is not over. Um, it is a difficult uh, path. But again, if there are levels of corruption and fraud and deceit that have been suggested by these attorneys, just take away all the names, all the outcomes, and just ask yourself, what are we supposed to what are we supposed to do? What are you supposed to do if you're a state legislature and it's your ultimately your job to make sure that the electors that you send to uh, you know to the electoral college reflect the will of the voters in your state? I mean that's the statute in most I would say all I just don't know for certain, but in most states that's the way that this presumably all the, the, the way that it works. The problem is. If you can have no confidence in the outcome of these elections, what are you supposed to do? 
It's a very reasonable question. What are you supposed to do? There's so much fraud, corruption. Again, you look at these signed affidavits, pristine ballots coming in in the state of Georgia. People, you know, people that have counted ballots for 20 years said that that's obviously not what a ballot looks like. What are you supposed to do? You, the Democrats just want you to, hey, certify this thing, get on with life. We've got this mythical office of the president-elect, Joe Biden's out there mumbling and bumbling about whatever else he's uh, talking about. Kamala Harris is out there talking about whatever she's talking about. You've got talk of his cabinet. Bernie Sanders, the Department of Labor, that's possible, I guess. Elizabeth Warren uh, running the Treasury, that sounds fantastic. This is all speculative, of course, but these are the sorts of things that you hear whispers about. Anyway, but the question remains, what, what happens next? Is there really a viable path? You know, some think Trump's just out there trying to, you know, hunker down in the White House. Hunker down. We know all about hunkering down here. But hunkering down in the White House and refusing to leave. But there's a much more fundamental problem here. What what are you supposed to do? We don't have any confidence in these elections. I saw, what is it, 38%, 40%, some some number that's approaching half the country. Don't believe this. It's remarkable times that we live in. So now what? Again, take away names, outcomes, who gets what. Just what are you supposed to do? You don't know what the results are. The, the cheating and the quote-unquote errors and miscalculating goes in one direction. What are you supposed to think of all this? I know what I think about this, but I've got to take a break. Come back and share the rest of my interview with Hans von Spakovsky back here in just a minute. I'm with Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, talking about the 2020 election, the the process, what normally happens, and so forth. And he kind of laid out what normally happens after votes are cast on Election Day before the break. So now, what is it that makes 2020 different? What are some things that have happened? And I guess um, maybe kind of paint the picture of of some of the concerns, irregularities, and, and those sorts of things. Well, I think the biggest problem has been the huge exponential increase in voting by mail. And the problem with that is that, um, uh, look, if you look if you look at election fraud cases, proven cases, uh, absentee ballots are often the target because they're the easiest ballots, frankly, to steal, to forge, to change uh, and to pressure voters in their homes to vote a particular way. Um, And so. You know, you have to be worried about that, uh, particularly also because there have been these big pushes through litigation to change the rules governing the absent ballots. I mean, we talked about er- earlier uh, about the extension of uh, the deadlines for the receipt of those ballots. But lawsuits have also tried to get rid of the security protocols in place for absentee ballots. I mean, for example, lawsuits were filed trying to say, oh, the states should not do signature comparisons which is one of the only ways to figure out whether somebody else filled out your ballot and forged your signature. Um, we had lawsuits saying states should not be able to enforce their witness signature requirement on absentee ballots. And we also had lawsuits um, 
saying that states that ban vote harvesting uh, should should have those laws overridden. And for folks who don't know what vote harvesting means, um, look, when you vote by absentee ballot, you can mail it back. You can deliver it yourself. Usually a member of your family can deliver it. But strangers, other other folks are not allowed to deliver your ballots for you. Um, states that allow vote harvesting allow anybody to show up at your front door, a, a candidate, you know, a campaign staff or a party activist to offer to deliver your ballot. And of course, the problem with that is you're putting your ballot in the hands of people who have a stake in the outcome of the election. That, that's right. And that's very that's very problematic. And you, you can see kind of the false nature of what these lawsuits and folks on the left were claiming, because, you know, they, they had this big push. We've got to have absentee mail-in ballots because of COVID-19. At the very same time, they're saying, oh, if you're a state that bans uh, vote harvesting, why, you've got to allow it now because of COVID-19. Well, what's a faster way of spreading COVID-19 than saying you're going to allow strangers to go door to door to door in the neighborhood to pick up people's ballots? You know, that doesn't make any sense. It, what it shows you is they were trying to take advantage of COVID-19 to change the rules in, in a bad way. Like I said, the biggest problem with this is uh, – it, it puts the it puts your ballots in the hands of people who have a stake in the outcome, and it makes you liable to them pressuring you in your homes to vote a particular way. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have any concerns about some of these things you've seen about the uh, Dominion voting systems and some of the questions, allegations, irregularities, statistical analysis, any of that stuff? Does that does that concern you? Well, it concerns. Look, you know, look, two dozen states use Dominion software. On the other hand, I do know that Texas uh, refused, after testing the, the, the Dominion um, equipment, refused to allow it to be certified and sold in Texas. Uh, I, I don't know whether any of these allegations about, about the Dominion equipment are true. What I do think is that it needs to be investigated, and they need to uh, evaluate, review, and test the equipment and the software to see if there's any truth to any of these allegations. So what do you do or what do you think is the right thing to do? Try to be, I know you, you know, um, you know, we all come at this with some degree of bias, but as, as fairly as we can here, you're a member of a state legislature in say Michigan or Pennsylvania or whatever. And, and you're not, I mean, it's very reasonable to think we can't trust the results that we're seeing here. Is there any, like what happens? I mean, are they just going to go with, um, you know, the the certified results? We've got this situation in in um, the county of Detroit, and I'm drawing a blank on the county at the moment. But you know, they've not certified the vote there yet in that particular county, specifically in Detroit. I mean, how are they supposed to navigate this? Is there a chance of anyone talking about sending a slate of electors that may not? <laughs> match up with how the state allegedly voted. I guess walk us through that. What are some scenarios and what's the right thing to do there? Well, the legislatures do have the ultimate constitutional authority over uh, which electors uh, get to vote. Um, all the states, though, have, have put in laws saying that uh, whoever the majority of the people in the, in the, votes, in the state vote for, uh, that's the slate of electors that get to vote. So state legislators would have to override a state statute on that if they want to pick a different slate of electors. I don't think they would even consider doing that unless they have overwhelming evidence that the results of the election were compromised. 
And um, there's only been one instance in the in U.S. history that I could find where something like this happened. And that was the 1876 election. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1876, three states, uh, including, I think, uh, Florida, South Carolina, they they couldn't figure out uh, who had won the election in their states. And so they sent two sets of electoral college votes uh, to Congress and said, you you try to figure it out. And Congress actually set up a bipartisan commission to investigate it, and they ended up awarding all the electoral college votes of the three states to the Republican candidate, Rutherford B. Hayes. But that's only happened once in American history. I, look, I doubt it's going to happen this time. What I, what I do think needs to come out of this very clearly is, look, no matter what happens in the presidential race, um, all of these irregularities, these problems, all these claims, they all need to be investigated thoroughly by state legislatures, by election officials, and by law enforcement officials to uh, figure out what problems occurred, what vulnerabilities there are in the system, and fix any of those vulnerabilities and problems so that we don't have this problem happen again. If you had to last – I know you got to wrap up here and we want to be respectful with your time. What is, What are the things that you think – and I know we've got – you know of a wide variety of the way that states approach elections. What are some, some common sense solutions to some of these problems, uh, these um, loopholes or what do you, fraudulent opportunities that folks have to do nefarious things? What are some common sense solutions that states should implement in their elections moving forward to prevent some of this stuff from going chaotic? Well, every state needs a voter ID law. But they need a voter ID law that applies not just to in-person voting, but also to absentee balloting. Uh, Second, every state ought to require proof of citizenship when people register to vote. Um, Furthermore, they need to do a better job with their state voter registration list in finding people who are uh, registered more than once and people who are also registered in other states to, for example, uh, prevent people from being able to vote more than once in the same state or vote more than once because they're registered in two different states. And there's a whole actually relatively easy uh, series of steps people could take to do that that election officials just aren't doing. Um, uh, And that includes, by the way, uh, states should be running their data lists uh, and comparing them with the voter registration list with the records held by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to find people who are not U.S. citizens who've registered and voted. I mean, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of very simple steps I think states could take that they're just not doing. When you think about mass vote by mail sort of approach, what what are the what do you think about that? Uh, I don't like voting by mail for many reasons. Like I said, it's they're the easiest ballots to to steal, alter, forge, coerce voters with. And I think it spreads voting out over too long of a period of time. It's particularly a problem for people who look, if you vote two months before Election Day and information comes out that is important to the choice you made as a candidate, guess what? It's too, too late, too late to change your vote. You can't do anything about it. Well, that's right. There's a lot of problems, a lot of common sense solution. Hans, I appreciate you uh, shedding some light on some of these things. Thank you so much. I respect you. I respect Heritage and the good work that you do over there. Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow 
at the Heritage Foundation. Hans, thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Sure, I appreciate you having me. Not a problem. Thanks a lot. All right, folks, that is all the time that I have today. I know we're headed into the weekend. I know that there's a lot of things vying for your attention, a lot of things that um, still need to be worked out here, looking at (laughs) the possibility of a real Biden presidency, the possibility, you know, the hope that maybe something can still come of all these lawsuits and what's happening and so forth. But hang tight, hang tough, be tough, hang in there, and know that, folks, this battle is just beginning in a lot of ways. So have a great weekend. SDG. See you Monday. Take care.